Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Whether we've been creating elementary stone tools, travelling into space, or even developing our own artificial intelligences, since the beginning of time, humans have been fascinated by how our world works and how it fits us. Design thinking has exploded into the 21st century workplace. It's a methodology that is designed to put humans squarely at the centre of everything we do. And this series explores where it's come from and where it's going. From a methodology for businesses to a philosophy for life, design thinking is changing the world. That's Richard Adams and I'm Sam Fry. On the last podcast, we heard that design thinking is a method for creative problem solving, which has been taught in business schools, universities and businesses over the last 20 years. Today, we explore how well understood design thinking actually is and what people think of the design thinking industry that has grown up over the last 20 years or so. We're going to hear from people in businesses, design education to artists and designers. So... Act one, where does design thinking work best? Here's Amanda Foreman from Zone, a cognizant business. We asked her whether it's mainly used in software design. Well, I think like you said, software works well in, I think any sort of like application or software development, I think it's very helpful. I think service design as well. The idea of like, how do we test various parts of like a service? I think even in business, like new business areas, that's the area that I work in is in business design, which I feel like is, is such a vague, non-helpful term. (laughs) And I don't think anybody really uses it much. It's kind of new, but it's this idea of like, how do we combine like strategy and almost like management consulting practices with design concepts? And so I think it's that idea of yeah, the marriage of different things and applying it to different spaces with the idea that, you know, ultimately like my job might look very, very different on every project I'm on, but it's ultimately my goal is to keep this iterative, human-centered, value-driven approach to how I solve problems while also looking at, well, the problems I'm solving might be is this a valuable piece of software for this person to build from a market perspective? Not, you know, does this UI make you click on something so that you purchase more stuff necessarily? So I think it can be applied to different areas in different ways, but it might look slightly different depending upon the context you're in. Alongside lean and agile processes, design thinking is becoming a key way of helping to create software. But it's also being used to explore other challenges across businesses. It isn't just being used to design software. Here's Hal Wirtz from IBM. One of the most powerful concepts that design thinking uh, espouses and helps people practice is the ability to look at a situation and look at a challenge, look at a context and think about it from other people's points of view. Robert Hopman Jr. from Tangible UX explains how that works in practice. So a lot of times when I engage with teams, we'll run something that we call a strategy workshop. So we get a bunch of 
people involved in product decisions into a room together, and we would cover the walls with butcher paper, and we'd have whiteboards, and there would be dry erase markers and regular markers and thousands (laughs) of sticky notes. And basically, throughout the course of the day, we would begin by diagramming out basically the current state of things in some sort of problem area. You know, what what does the current problem-solving process for a person look like? How do they get this thing of value that they're after, whether it's a product delivered, whether it's a, a task accomplished, something like that? We'll diagram that out on this butcher paper on the wall through a facilitated conversation, and then we'll use sticky notes and various other exercises uh, various in the context of various exercises to uh, identify problems uh, in that current diagram, that current state diagram, and then generate sticky notes full of, you know, identified problems in that current reality. And then we'll free list uh, potential solutions to those problems. And then we'll go through some, some more exercises where we prioritize those sticky notes. We group them according to their, their themes, how related they are. Um, so sort of chunking those things together, and then we'll organize them according to their potential impact against a business objective or how much risk is involved with trying out that solution or how much you know level of effort might be involved in building out a solution. Uh, and then so all of these are, are incredibly hands-on uh, exercises um, that involve you know literally writing on the walls all day and filling out sticky notes and moving sticky notes around and rearranging them all day long and uh, and ultimately coming out with basically a bunch of pictures that we all take of, of the the mess we made in the conference room that day. Um, but a prioritized list of potential solutions that we then want to go focus on uh, testing out. Clearly, it's not just about the people. To have an impact, it's also about the location and the practices used. Here's Jessica Tremblay from IBM. I mean, when we first spun up the, the design and design thinking program, it was all about people, practices and places. And the places part, that's that's a big part that I definitely miss. I mean, that design studio in Austin, Texas, it, it was home for six, six plus years for me. And it's where I met some of my favorite people. It's, you know, where I've had some of my greatest challenges. It's it's a place where I know that I can go and I can be my my full true self and bring my full true self to work. And um, it's a fun place to work. The place was designed a whole floor of that uh, that campus was designed specifically for those in-person design thinking engagements to where people can go congregate and have these big workshops and big just learning sessions with one another to, to really put humans and users at the center of their work. So design thinking works best when the combination of people, practices and places come together. When you collaborate, are fully user-centered and work in a conducive environment. Well, that's nice in theory, but design thinking is now evolving and people are being exposed to many different implementations of it. How well understood is design thinking? As we've been exploring design thinking, some have described it as a method with sequential steps, while others talk about it as a set of principles or a philosophy. So which is it? And do people actually get it in practice? 
Amanda Foreman explains her experiences of working with clients at Cognizant. I think in certain instances, maybe the client doesn't understand it yet. So if you're trying to apply a certain methodology and you're trying to bring people through a, like a journey of, okay, so we're going to diverge and we're going to gather information, we're going to talk to people, and then we're going to then once we've done that, then we're going to solutionize and we're going to narrow in on something that we're going to actually like build and test. And I think that that's a big paradigm shift for a lot of people. I think that was a big paradigm shift for me, honestly. So I, I think I tended to think in my life, like quite linearly, like my mom is definitely like a very strong, like planner, like make lists, check things off the list. Everything sort of happens in an order. Um, so I think that that sort of way, oh, everything is, can be standardized and everything is like the same. And like, there's a clear path forward. I think that can be quite ingrained in the way that we think as people, especially depending upon what culture we grew up in or what type of school we went to. And so I think that shifting that paradigm to being more uh, iterative and I'm going to, I'm going to test this. Like, I'm not going to like sit and think about it until it's absolutely perfect. I'm going to actually like put something together and test it. And I think that that is not a way that a lot of people think just generally in life. And so I think if you're applying that to a business context where, you know, as a society, we've solved problems in a particular way for so long. And then all of a sudden somebody's saying, oh, actually, like we want you to start testing ideas like right away. We don't want you to hide them. We want you to go talk to people. We want to, we want to fail fast. Like that, I think that that's, yeah, on the client side, that's a big education, but also I even think on a practitioner side, like that's a big mindset shift even for us as professionals. Getting people to embrace principles of being human-centered iterative and collaborative has been a massive mindset shift. It's principles and philosophies. Yet often when you talk to people about design thinking, they explain it using very concrete terms. They explain it as a workshop or a post-it workshop. Typically, they only see the outputs, not the underlying concepts. We asked how words, whether she gets frustrated with that definition. The reason why people use the shorthand for design thinking of a workshop or just getting out post-it notes or, you know, whatever their, their trope is, is because they're grappling for a set of tools to solve a problem that they have. They're like, ah, I have this problem. I need to solve it. And they're trying to do it as fast as possible. And so they just are, they're like, and I, and maybe design thinking will help. And so they're grappling for it. So in part, I think we can look at that as like a major um, signifier of a need, like people need something to solve this problem. And so, yes, we live in a world where people try and do things really fast and they want it, they, they want it yesterday. And so they try and do it in the, the, the fastest way that they can, which is, hey, I, I can devote four hours to this. I could, I can do a workshop. That's all I can do. And so the, those are kind of the, um, to me, those are, if I'm running a business, those are like the earlier, those are the hints that, hey, some, there's a need here. People are, people are exploring. Uh, and so the key here is that, yeah, there, there's some early education around that, like, this isn't just a workshop, right? This is going to be a long process, um, that this is really something that you integrate into your everyday work. And, um, I don't know, for me, that's okay. That's, that's part of, uh, changing minds and hearts is, um, people will experience it once and they'll say, they'll have some ahas about it. And then bit by bit, they start building it into, uh, really the best way of doing is like building into the habits of your everyday work, right? Like, 
that's, that's what happens. Like how often does someone, um, bring, uh, reframe a problem in terms of a human? How often does someone say, Oh, let's, let's make, instead of, uh, well, let's just make a prototype first and show it to someone. Right. Versus like making a whole, like doing the whole project, like, Oh, let's just do something in one day and bring it out and, and show it to people. I mean, those are kind of like the daily habits that are the real, uh, the, 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 that's the real practice of design thinking in someone's everyday life. And hopefully when someone asks for a workshop and they see the four hours of it, that it's just the beginning of an education around what is possible with a new set of tools and a new set of ways of thinking. Well, that's interesting. But is that how design students actually are educated on the topic? Let's meet Joseph. Yeah, I'm Joseph Pakal, and uh, I'm a global innovation designer, I suppose. <laughs> Joseph Pakal is a student at the prestigious Royal College of Arts. He's studying global innovation design. He explained how they've been introduced to the topic of design thinking on their course. It's been definitely more immersive and not necessarily presented as as like a very strictly linear process. Most people that I talk to about design thinking and about design processes or think about it in a linear fashion. Even if you have sort of iterative experiences within that, um, or maybe perhaps your prototyping phase is, is very iterative in a sense that you're trying to build different models and work in ergonomics and so on. I think it's quite often omitted that actually the whole process should be a loop or perhaps rather a, a, an upwards facing spiral or, or uh, however you'd want to call it. Joseph mentioned there that the design process itself is a loop and many organizations have now started to describe design thinking as a cyclical spiraling or looping experience. In other words, something that doesn't finish, a continuous set of questions, if you like, and certainly not a one-off post-it note workshop. Tassie Ellen Thompson, who teaches in design schools, explains the importance of questioning. I was just listening to another, you know, description of design thinking, and somebody was explaining, how, you know, what was design thinking? Like, it was in 30 seconds. And the basic gist was, you know, coming together, round a table, lots of pens, post-it notes, <laughs> big sheets of paper on the wall. And I thought, that's interesting. Have you questioned things like, the size of a post-it note will define how you write on it. The fact that the colours of the post-it note will affect how you think about it. Your associations from the past with post-it notes will affect what you write on the post-it note. The pens on the paper will define whether you're comfortable with a pen and be the first to pick it up, therefore the first to impact on what gets written. You know, uh, the, the performative nature of getting up to write on a wall will, be, will define what's written and recorded. Uh, so all of these things, that's what I mean about questioning. The question is question every tool and device. Dr Yankee Lee also challenged the emphasis that companies put on co-creation in this process. As I say, I think the co-creation is, it should be throughout the process, but I think it's changing in terms of the percentage. For example, in IDEO, they talk about the first step is design researcher is carefully investigate human experience and behavior. And so I think that part for me is 
designer needs design lead this part. So the co-creation should be more like maybe only 10% because we're going out to the field, we co-create with the people who are living in the issues. But then the later stage when you're really engaging the community that you're working with, then the co-creation become more engaging. And I think the co-creation is not a fixed stage. It's never been 50-50. It's always changing. Now back to Joseph. And that kind of goes to the point of, of what I've been thinking about recently in, in, in the question of like the future of design practice is... I generally think that like design process really needs to be much more reflective on itself and scrutinize the launched product. It shouldn't end with a launch. After the launch, we need to find out a way to measure not only what is sort of its business impact, which I think we're quite good at. Like we know, okay, the retention metrics, we know what revenue potential does this have. We measure all these things. But we also need to scrutinize the ergonomic impact and the aesthetic impact and perhaps more importantly, the ethical impact of whatever we launch out there, right? But this is where I think like really that point of like design thinking or whichever design process you utilize for your practice, um, there's a point of cyclical nature to it, which maybe is not that common in the Western world or Western thought, but should probably be introduced. Um, you know, how do you redesign something? How do you measure what impact it had on society? And what is your responsibility then to act on that measurement? Robert Hockman Jr. explained that one of design thinking's challenges is the lack of a common language. This, combined with a lack of metrics, has made it a struggle in practice. I do think that one of the, the, the key difficulties for enterprises with regards to design thinking is that, again, there's no sort of common definition and there's no common, you know, standardized set of practices uh, that can be sustained long term. So, like, you, you know, you can't just teach a team or five teams uh, how to do this stuff and expect it to stick um, because, you know, especially if you work internally <laughs> where there might be five different, you know, definitions of design thinking across five different teams. It hasn't matured to the point within a lot of companies that it can be clearly and obviously proven that the, that the merits of it can be proven out to the extent that the leadership who is funding it can tell that it's having the desired effect. Even if you're, you're on a team that's doing a good job of design thinking, you may have a lot of artifacts. You may have, you know, things to show and go, hey, look, we're doing all this great stuff. We're making good decisions together. They may, not still, they may still not yet be tying those efforts to the business objectives. And so the leadership doesn't necessarily know um, whether that version of design thinking is the right one or whether it's, it's, it's effective or not. Shy of, shy of actually delivering those metrics uh, and proving the, the effects of a design thinking process, um, it, it can't, you know, entirely, it won't entirely get the support of upper tier management uh, to keep it going. And so, yeah, I think there's, there's definitely a risk with, um, you know, with design thinking with, you know, from a lack of measurement. Um, from a lack of shared understanding and from a lack of just being able to clearly point and go, look, we actually did something better than what we were doing before, and it's because of design thinking tools. There's no clear way to do that in a lot of places, and that's why you know it runs into walls at times. There are clearly different views on what is important about design thinking and how it's being adopted, but it is being rolled out, packaged, sold, and embraced. In many ways, it's replacing the MBA boom of the 80s and 90s as one of the must-have skill sets for businesses. It's true, 
like MBAs before it, it has become an industry of its own. So how does that affect the perception of design thinking? Act three, what do we think about the design thinking industry? One of the biggest criticisms of design thinking, especially when it's applied as a step-by-step method, is that it is too solution-driven. Tassie Ellen Thompson shares this concern. In some senses, people use design thinking simply as a creative process to get from A to B. Um, And it seems so clear that the sort of use of design thinking is structured to solve um, you know a, a capital capitalist based approach product based pro, you know a, a finished product um, rather than to question the question to in, interrogate ideas it is it seems to be used as a, a place to get to somewhere that has marketable or you know capital value design thinking is <laughs> sometimes it feels as though it's used to get from a to b as quickly and as efficiently as possible tassie is concerned that design thinking in its application is often linear driven step by step and that when this approach is taken you will get to a solution for sure but that actually may not be the best solution for your problem no no methods are are perfect and like anything it's a method um, reading John Law's brilliant book, you know, After Method, um, the mess of uh, method in social studies, this idea that whatever we use is a, a device and that device shapes the answer that you will get. So design thinking is a whatever, how it's used and whatever company uses it or individual uses it or community group uses it they will get the the solution they come to will be affected by how they've used the process and who they are and where they are. Everything is kind of context-based. Tassie's background includes designing physical spaces, like children's playgrounds. When I first started designing playgrounds, I totally over-designed my first playground. Oh my goodness, I'm like really sort of embarrassed about it now. Because I was so enthusiastic and like so, you know, you know, and I, I did workshops with the local community and I really, you know, involved everybody and it was like design thinking workshops. And you know, we had the post-its and we had pictures and we, we walked around the site and but then I over-designed it. You know, fast forward nearly 20 years, and my first question is, do we need a playground at all? What is play? And then start to ask other people, what do we want to do here? What kind of, do we want to play here? What kind of play? You know, if we did play here, what kind of playing would we do? And what should we keep that is already here, that is just fine for playing with? (laughs) And what should or shouldn't we add? And if we do take something away or add it, what impact does it have on other people or other things or other animals or other systems that are within our ecological biosphere in our little you know our local area or wider what impact will it have if I 
design something. And that's what I kind of mean about this idea of pro-ecological design thinking, is that we, we really question, use the artistic sensibility to figure out, you know, do we need to actually design something? Or do we, un- we need to undesign? <laughs> or do, you know, less light design or not just not design anything at all? Um, so all of those, you know, it's kind of a messy answer, but I think it's also quite useful. I, I find it useful to ask myself anyway, uh, before I go rushing in, as I did 20 years ago with my sort of newly acquired sort of designer status, um, is actually go, I don't, am I really needed or should I just, no. <laughs> the criticism is that design thinking simplifies the picture of what design is and overemphasizes certain approaches to design. Often, this is done by communicating complex ideas as a formula that can be followed. We asked Hal Wurtz, what is her view of that formula? I'm totally okay with the formula. I'm totally okay with it because I think it's, I think it is the power of what scales it. I think it's a a beautiful component of it. And I mean, of course, like things become memefied, right? Like things that are easy to like put on a post-it note, (laughs) things that are easy to put in a simple diagram, they get memefied, they get misused. I think design thinking does a fantastic job of um, capturing some really essential principles of what it means to make well in a simple diagram that has like, that unfolds for you. So the first time that you do it, the first time that you hear about it, for example, on this podcast, you're like, okay, I kind of get it. I have a couple ah ahas. And then after a week of practicing it, after six months of practicing it, after years of practicing it, like that, that understanding deepens. Design thinking is not something that you're going to understand by watching a one hour presentation on it. You're not going to get it. It's about doing it. It's about practicing in your real life. And that's where the, the real aha moments come. I like that idea of people deepening their understanding of design thinking through a series of aha moments. Fingers crossed you had a few ahas as you listened to this podcast. So today we learned that design thinking works best when the combination of people, practices and places come together. It's also not fully understood by those that use it. And it is often criticised for oversimplifying design. But when it is used it can change the culture of organisations. So how does it change how people work together and empathise with their users? Are people really getting more comfortable with failing? Surely not. Maybe that's one for next time. This episode was written, recorded and produced by Sam Fry and Richard Adams. Thanks also to Alex Stanek, Amanda Foreman, Diana Kanheiser, Al Wurtz, Jessica Tremblay, Joseph Bacall, Lisa Ayama, Robert Huckman, Stiliana Minkowska, Tassie Ellen Thompson and Dr Yankee Lee for being interviewed. All music from this podcast is available on a Creative Commons license downloaded at freemusicarchive.org. Artists include Alex Productions, Circus Marcus, Crowander and Yehazar. Don't miss an episode of this series. Subscribe to the podcast feed. 
And also, if you could, please give us a five-star rating to help us get in the charts. If you want to find out more about us, please go to technique.create-hub.co.uk. Next time on Techniques Explores Design Thinking. Just ask people. Just talk to people. Like, Don't assume that you know what they want. Just ask. How do 160 people decide what lives should uh, you know, a, a, a fifth of a planet live. And, you know, everything I've read about design thinking is all about, you know, giving away your ideas, sharing with others. And that's great, but you do have to develop trust. We explore how co-creating is changing the culture of companies. And we are beginning to ask, can we trust each other? Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.